0: Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. For the second segment of the show now, we are going to be covering uh, – Discussing the New Institute Manual. I guess it's not really new, new. It's been out for several months now. But Answering Gospel Questions. And uh, we have the opportunity to discuss Lesson 3 in that manual, which is Asking Questions with Faith in Christ. So...
1: This lesson kind of sets out like uh, kind of true or false statements. This is lesson is split up into three segments where you discuss these statements, whether they're true, false, or maybe somewhere in between. And spoiler alert, all of the statements here are false, or at least that's kind of the (laughs) (laughs) takeaway that uh, we want to engender faith-filled questions with an eye focused on Jesus Christ. And, you know, some people may scoff at this as being a protective sort of method or technique of the church but honestly this this is the best way to seek gospel answers. Um at least that's been my experience as I've saw answers to my questions. So the first statement or segment that the lesson talks about is statement n- number 1. It is inappropriate to ask questions regarding the doctrine, teachings, policies and history of the church. Is this true or false? <laughs>
0: Obviously that one's true. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> No, um, I actually w- – when I was preparing to study this, I I was wondering – i I'm a little baffled that some people grow up in the church with the impression that they're not supposed to ask questions because like I feel like my entire life – and maybe I just was privileged or something. I don't know. But like my parents, my young men's and and youth Sunday school teachers – my uh, my seminary teachers, like, my whole life I felt like my gospel instruction was always about, like, you, you should be asking questions, and you should be wondering, and you should be seeking answers. And, uh, you know, and I mean, I feel like the entire gospel instruction you grow up with is structured on, like, how to seek answers to questions within a spiritual gospel context. Um, so – I understand that some people maybe had experiences where they asked questions that other people didn't know how to answer, and so then they got brushed off or whatever, and that maybe rankled them, and or or maybe they, they asked, like, oh, those aren't the questions you're supposed to ask or something. I don't know. Uh, they asked the kinds of questions that aren't as common in, in our faith, but I feel like the general idea that you can ask questions is, like, the number one thing that came across to me growing up. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, just... The other day, there was an article in the Salt Lake Tribune where a disaffected member of the church who was left stated that the church doesn't like answering hard questions about its history and teaching, so it creates a theology in which asking those questions can put your very soul in danger. It positions seeking truth as a threat to eternal salvation. One must put their questions on the shelf or risk not being with their family after this life. And that's a premise I just absolutely reject. The church never teaches that. And the very foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is to seek questions and ask in faith. That's what started the restoration. Joseph Smith not being satisfied with the answers he found in the churches and in the surrounding religious discussion he was seeing. So he asked God and saw God and God revealed to him new truth. And so we believe that our church is now founded on revelation from asking, seeking and finding. And so absolutely, we encourage questions. And, you know, some people may still think, well, you know, that's more simplistic, like inspirational, God's real sort of revelation but no these are hard questions if you go through the doctrine and covenants joseph smith is asking doctrinal questions theological questions scripture exegetical questions i mean he is constantly asking 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 and seeking answers that sometimes he never expected and didn't want to know the answer to but always left you know you grow it's a growing experience to have those questions Uh,
0: not to mention the question uh is God real and which is his church is like arguably, like that's like the hardest question. That's like arguably the biggest question that, and most universal question that's asked of any person of faith. Uh, really. Um, we've gotten caught up on, in fact, we'll, we'll maybe get into this a little later, but I feel like what people end up getting caught up on are a lot more of the secondary questions or, or more peripherally important questions. Really. Uh, I know that might feel dismissive to some, but, uh, that, like, does God exist? And and if so, what church or how does he want me to worship? Like, that's, like, the most central question for anyone in religion. The, the, you can't ask a bigger question than that. You can't ask a harder question than that.
2: Uh, that quote from the Salt Lake Tribune from that author uh, was quite revealing in some ways. Um, there's a lot of moral grandstanding I see about people saying, well, I— Unlike those benighted Mormons and those dupes, I am always questioning what the truth is. I am always seeking for truth, and I am open to any kind of questioning. I guarantee you every single person that jumps on that soapbox, guarantee you put money on it. They have certain orthodoxies they don't want you questioning, ideological, political, uh, or religious orthodoxies or whatever, that they will start to get defensive and upset if you start questioning. Put money on it, right? So – In my experience, uh, whether it's been in academia, whether it's been in uh, discussions of current events and culture and politics, everybody inevitably is going to have some kind of a a sacred cow they don't want you questioning, right? So when you see somebody that's moral grandstanding about this – well, unlike you, I question everything and I'm open to search for truth – Dig deeper, dig deep enough, and you're probably going to find something that they don't want you, you know, challenging or questioning. Or they're going to get mad at you if you do question it. Or they'll attribute insincere motives or bad faith motives if you question it, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's just sort of – just individually people can pick which, which one it is they want, a religious thing, an ideological thing, a political thing. But to both your points, I can just say I, I, growing up as well, I think it was very atypical for this assumption that you're not allowed to ask questions. You're not allowed to seek things on your own.
0: Yeah, and I feel like, like I said, I just felt like so much of my gospel teaching was centered around learning to ask and seek answers to gospel questions um and that's like how you build a testimony faith promoting stories from my seminary teachers and young men's leaders and almost always involved wrestling with some hard question prompted usually by a difficult or challenging life experience a divorce a a child dying a uh you know all kinds of hardships di- a cancer a, di- a cancer diagnosis those kinds of things that really test people in a lot of ways and make them question a lot of things and, you know, the resolve to work through those questions and take them to the Lord rather than uh, you know, let them make you into a cynical, uh faithless curmudgeon or or whatever. And I'm not trying to caricaturize people who maybe wrestled with that those very challenging things and ended up on the other side of it. But um but the point the point I'm just trying to make is I feel like Answering or asking and seeking answers to questions really is like at the heart of how you you build faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ.
1: i just like to echo that. I mean, the manual itself says that inquiry is the birthplace of testimony. And they give the example of Joseph Smith history and how Joseph Smith had a question and was, received the first vision. But my own testimony is really based on questions and just an insatiable need to find the answers When I was in seminary, my mom was the one who taught me and her big thing was questions. Like every single day when we had a reading assignment, the homework assignment that went with it was come up with, you know, just one insight into your reading, one nice thought that you had, but two questions. Every single you should have double the questions that you have insights for. And so by the end of the week, I would have, you know, a few dozen questions from my the passages of the New Testament we were assigned and we would I would spend hours just asking my mom these questions and having her try to work through the answers with me and you know that was just one of the most validating and helpful and soul-searching experiences to uh to ask questions and to be inspired to ask more questions, because the more you ask questions, the more questions you're going to have. And, you know, just it kind of inspires that journey and that quest, but also to have someone who's willing to like sit with me, listen to the things that were concerning me or I had questions about and help me work through them, because then it gave me a model from which I could do that myself. Eventually, I learned to not ask my mother all my questions, but to ask God my questions, ask the scriptures my questions, go to a library and search for answers that way. And so that really just started me on my personal journey. And So the idea that the church discourages questions is a little laughable to me because I wouldn't be here if it weren't for all the questions I had for the gospel.
0: Um, So with that, we should maybe uh, move on to statement two. Uh, Statement two is, there are always simple and straightforward answers to questions about the doctrine, teachings, policies, and history of the church. Um. True or false? That one is also false. Um, Stephen, it looks like you might have something to say about that.
2: Yeah, this is one of these areas where in some ways Latter-day Saint discourse has painted us in a corner. And so I'm glad that the manual is addressing this. And here's what I mean. So you often hear it said, The gospel of Jesus Christ is simple. It is plain. It is easy, right? Uh, even children can understand it. Anybody can live it and appreciate it, right? You don't have to go off and get advanced degrees to understand the gospel. And and that's all true, right? However, we then take that and extrapolate it to say everything about the church and everything about Latter-day Saint teachings and doctrine theology, all of that is simple and straightforward and plain, right? Um, and so – We've kind of, in some ways, again, we've in the past we've boxed ourselves in with this assumption that, oh, because the gospel of Jesus Christ is plain and simple, therefore everything about the church is plain and simple, and that includes, um, again, as it says, policies, teachings, history of the church, right? And it doesn't take long for anybody to realize that is simply not the case, um, especially in terms of policies and history of the church, right? Uh, This is where you collide head-on with the messy complexity that is the lived human condition and the lived human experience. So my only kind of – well, my main sort of word of caution here or advice perhaps is to say don't confuse the simplicity and plainness of the doctrine of Christ with with the history of the church or the policies that the church sometimes enacts, right? There are instances where, where it is very plain, right? And it is very simple, kind of the answers for it. There's plenty of times where it's not, and we need to disentangle those and not fall into the assumption that because some of it is simple, therefore all of it must be simple. Uh, This is where we get into a related issue is when – and Neil, I know you've had this experience. I know Jasmine's had this experience. When you try to sit down with somebody and they have questions about – Um, that aren't – they have questions about church history or policies where the answer is not straightforward and not simplistic. It takes a lot of work to unpack things and explain things. They might say, oh, well, this is just mental gymnastics. The answer should be simple and easy. And if it's not simple and easy, that's because you're just doing mental gymnastics and mental backflips or whatever. And they have – again, because they've had this mindset that the truth must be simple, capital S. And so if the answer is not simple, therefore, or straightforward, therefore, the thing itself is not simple, right? Mm Right.
0: Yeah, and and it doesn't help that like uh, beyond even the church we live in a broader cultural moment in, in time and really it's it's probably probably every every generation has felt this way. I think sometimes we we exaggerate how different our generation is, but we live in a moment in time where the culture really drives towards oversimplified narratives oversimplified uh, claims which is polarizing people to one side or the other constantly uh, because it's really easy and simple to communicate simple easy ideas and uh, when reality is just much more fuzzy and complicated that's a lot harder to convey and communicate across uh, to people but the reality is you know I I like to tell people who are struggling when when they're dealing with this that you know Human history, we know, is complicated. There's no, there's no getting around that. Any historian, any anthropologist, any scholar of, of the humanities will tell you hu- human history is a complicated history because humans are complicated people. Well, church history is human history, right? And uh, even scriptural history, right? Uh, The ancient history of of Israel and the New Testament that we were just talking about and the Book of Mormon, like all of this is part of human history and human history is complicated. Humans were involved in this and so it gets messy and complicated sometimes. And as Stephen pointed out, that doesn't mean the gospel itself is complicated. I think – God for from like day one has been like trying to communicate this really simple message to us principles
1: and ordinances and
0: we just always overcomplicate it because we're human beings and that's what we do and I you know if you're struggling with something in church history or something you should take comfort really in the fact that like there are people who literally go to grad school people like Stephen who who go into mass amounts of debt to spend years (laughs) and years in grad school and have weak job prospects. Just so that they can do – so that they can understand the kinds of problems and questions that you're suddenly being confronted with with none of that training. And I'm just picking on Stephen here. but
2: <laughs> It's all deserved.
1: <laughs> but honestly, I mean, it, we have no problem in education talking about things getting increasingly complicated the more you learn about them. But when it comes to the gospel or – Really, when it comes to anything outside your sphere of education, we tend to think that things should be more black and white and simple. But you grow up in elementary school and you learn about solids, liquids, and gases. Well, then you go to like maybe middle school and you learn about the periodic table of elements and how things are made up of more than just solids, liquids, and gases, but they have different elements and they have different numbers of atoms or neutrons and protons and electrons. And then you go to high school and you learn about how many electrons should be in a specific sphere or where they might be within that atom. And then if you go to college and start learning about string theory, You learn that none of that is true, or it's true, but none of it makes sense the way you thought it was, and everything is different, and it's way more complicated. And that's just how it works. Like, we teach simple things when we are young, and then we build upon that line upon line so that we can learn more complicated things. Sometimes that things don't have one answer, but there's a range of answers. There's a spectrum. There's ambiguity in the sciences, in math, in literature, in sociology, and in the gospel of Jesus Christ, or rather in, you know, church history or in policies. There's, there's all of that. And so we shouldn't necessarily mistake the principles of the gospel being simple for The questions that we have about church history, about scripture, about theology, all of those things are going to be just as complicated as string theory sometimes, and that's okay, and it may take time to answer those questions.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it helps when it comes to things like in science or even in history or whatever. It helps that for most people, your education on this stuff has been kind of graded or tiered, if you will. Um, and just because of the nature of the way the church is with new converts and lifetime people trying to study and worship together, we don't really have that kind of graded, tiered system in which you learn increasingly more. And so there, there really is because when we get together as saints to learn in elders quorum, relief society, Sunday school, sacrament meeting, and so forth, we really do have to make that message accessible to even the newest members of the church. There is a need, uh, you know, for you to have your own personal incentive and drive to go out and learn yourself. Right. And if you don't have that, then it's going to be a lot easier for other people to play gotcha with you uh, and the complicated stuff that happens in church history. One
1: example, I was thinking of, of, Something where there wasn't a straightforward or simple answer until more information was revealed, essentially, is kind of what happened with the Hoffman forgeries. Like when... Uh, Hoffman made these forgeries, it conflicted with the prevailing narrative of the church of how it was founded. It really underscored a lot more of like Joseph Smith's uh, money digging, magic worldview, and it really kind of undermined some of the narratives that we had about the gospel. And so the responses were varied because they thought, a lot of people thought these were authentic documents. And so some people thought, oh, well, I don't know, maybe. We, these are super authentic, we need to take them at their face value and accept that the church isn't true. Or we need to take them at their face value and try to reconcile it with church history. Or, I don't know, maybe we should question the authenticity of these documents. And so there was a variety of answers, they weren't super straightforward, and it could leave people questioning, wondering what was going on. But then, sometimes you just have to wait. You wait a few years and we found out these documents were total fakes. And, you know, the church history is still standing on great legs. And that's just one example of many, many, many
0: and And it can be frustrating when when the answer you want is just wait and you know that's an answer that you can come to both through serious intellectual study i mean I, I'm sure Stephen can tell us in all his years in grad school and studying ancient Egyptian and biblical stuff there's probably a lot of questions he has where he's just like we don't we can't answer that one right now. we just have to wait and uh you know that's just the way it is you can't pursue every question you might have about. Egyptology, for instance, within your lifetime, you would you would never be able to do it. And that's true of any discipline, and it's true of the gospel as well. And and so even from an intellectual perspective, and then sometimes from a spiritual perspective, when we're having a serious spiritual wrestle with a question and the spirit is telling us, I'm sorry, I know you really want an answer, but just wait. And that can be hard and that can be frustrating. And the the months and weeks and years maybe even that you spend waiting for an answer can feel empty and lonely and even dark sometimes uh, from a gospel perspective. But that's, again, going back to what we were saying earlier, that's where testimonies are built. That's where faith is built, is through those wrestles with questions and things like that. Um, Statement number three. Yeah. Belief or
1: unbelief in God will not affect how we approach questions about the meaning of morality and the purpose of life. True or false? <laughs> I, uh,
2: I I realize who this manual is intended for and the purpose behind it. But that question seems like such a no-brainer to me and so uncontroversial that I just do have to kind of chuckle that it has to even be asked, right? Um, <laughs> Gosh, let's think. Does it matter whether or not you believe in God or not? Is that going to affect the outcome of some of your lines of inquiry and the way you evaluate evidence? Um, yeah, the answer is unambiguously yes, right? Uh, every single human being, I don't care who you are or where you're born, you will have a priori assumptions and worldviews built into your brain that are that will affect how you begin a line of inquiry into any line of, whether it's religion or philosophy or what have you, right? Um, I just basically, at this point, I'm old enough to know and to reject out of hand this idea that humans are blank slates and like objective, rational robots who think purely in terms of strict logic, right? And when people have, when they approach a subject saying, "I am," and I hear this all the time, I'm approaching it as a strictly unbiased observer without it's like no come on dude like right off the bat i I know you're trying to pull a fast one here it is literally humanly impossible to do this and it it asks specifically belief or unbelief in god right like come on that's so huge whether or not you're going to believe god is real or not when you approach for heaven's sake joseph smith says that god appeared to him in a vision if you off the bat a priori believe that god doesn't exist then you're already going to begin this line of inquiry, and how you approach the evidence is going to is going to color that. Right now, well, you might still be right. You know, uh, <laughs> it could be that it, it, God doesn't exist or whatever. But like, just acknowledge and fess up to the fact that you have this a priori commitment. Um, I, I, I I will mention very briefly: Kerry Mühlstein, a BYU Egyptologist, brought this up in a fair conference he gave a couple years ago, and then he reiterated it in some of his publications when he said. I am a believing Latter-day Saint. So I believe God is real. I believe Joseph Smith is a prophet. And he he very, I think very uh, uh, commendably was frank about the fact that he says that means I have metaphysical and ideological priors that I bring with me as I evaluate the evidence. right? And he Mm -hmm. said, I'm honest about that and here's how I do it. And he went forth. He got absolutely pilloried on the internet. By uh, by people for saying this for admitting this, right? Oh, he's just a hack apologist or whatever, right? This was this was the shouting of the day. Um, I would like to draw attention to the fact that uh, none other than our favorite Joseph Smith biographer, Dan Vogel. Neil and I both love Dan Vogel. We've praised his work in our writings on Nahum, for example. (laughs) That's a joke. We've uh, we've heavily criticized him for that. Uh, So Dan Vogel has a forthcoming biography of Joseph Smith uh, that should prove uh, interesting, if not frustrating. And Vogel says, There are, in fact, many possible constructions of Joseph Smith, and depending on how one assesses the evidence for his truth claims, a completely different Joseph Smith emerges. Oh, gee, you mean like the thing that Kerry Muelstein said, you know, a couple years ago that everybody got mad at him for? So, yeah, I sorry, I won't filibuster. It's so uncontroversial. Your a priori beliefs are absolutely going to influence how you interpret and evaluate evidence, which sources you favor, which evidence you favor, how you favor it, and that will affect the outcome of your line of inquiry. There's no question about
0: it. Well, and there have been other equally frank admissions. Uh, to paraphrase, you know, one notable. Uh, skeptic, I won't call him a critic, but skeptic of of the restorations claims uh, in you know mid twentieth century, Sterling McMurrin. You don't get books from angels and translate them by, by miracles. Well, if, if that's what you believe in the first place, then there's there's no that's going to inf- affect how you inquire about the truth claims of the Book of Mormon. Like you've already made up your mind, and that shapes the rest of your answer. Or Dale Morgan, who wrote to Fon Brody and basically said, Juanita or Juanita Brooks, excuse me, and basically said, given my views on God, he was an atheist, I simply can't believe Joseph Smith's, uh, and I'm paraphrasing it, I can't believe Joseph Smith's claims, be they ever so convincing. <laughs> he just couldn't believe them, because he already had decided God didn't exist. Well, if, if God doesn't exist, then you obviously don't think God appeared to Joseph Smith. That's... That's already answers your question there.
1: And so when Carrie Mielstein kind of said that I have a framework of faith going into it, people just lambasted him for saying, oh, he's starting with his conclusion in mind. Therefore, he's not objective. He's not really going to find the truth. Well, the reality is that all the people on the opposing critics of the Book of Abraham, like the Brent Metcalfs, they're starting with the assumption and the conclusion that Joseph Smith was a fraud or that he wasn't actually divine. And so they bring those assumptions to the table as well. And this really goes down to what President Nelson has talked about in his young adult devotional when he talked about when you have questions, he gave four tips. And one of them was... Ask with a lens of faith. And people also criticized him for that, saying, you're starting with the conclusion of mine. But the idea is that, like, if you are a Latter-day Saint going through a hard time and struggling and having questions, do you want to stay in the church? Are you looking for a reason to leave? And that is going to drastically affect the outcome of your search. If you want to stay in the church, if you want to believe... Have belief as your framework. Have belief as your paradigm, and that's going to help guide you. If you say, well, that's not really objective, I'm going to follow these people who have left the church because they're objective, well, that's a false premise. They're not objective. They are starting with a a premise of skepticism, and so have a lens of faith when you're seeking your questions.
0: And this is actually where I think the the manual puts the Larry Corbridge stuff on primary questions and secondary questions under statement one, but I actually think it really fits in better with this discussion because the primary questions that Corbridge talks about, is there a God who is our Father? Is Jesus Christ the Son of God, the Savior of the world? Was Joseph Smith a prophet? Is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints the kingdom of God on the earth? Those are the questions you have to resolve yourself that are going to establish your paradigm of how you then pursue all these other questions that you might have about policy, doctrine, and church history, which are the secondary questions, and honestly, sometimes even more tertiary or periphery, but this is the paradigm. You have to answer these four questions first, and then that gives you a paradigm for going, pursuing answers for the rest. Uh, but that's been our first hour. We'll be right back. This is The Interpreter Show.